The word multitasking came from the world of computers, right? A CPU or the central processing unit of a computer is responsible for everything a computer does from the click of a keyboard to intense calculations or gaming. The CPU is responsible for all of it. And when the CPU ends up spending more time switching between tasks than it does processing tasks, this is called thrashing. And when the computer thrashes, performance degrades, and ultimately the computer crashes. And that's what's happening with us. Expanding possibilities, the mindset zone. I'm your host, Anna Kin. And before we start with today's show, please remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. Today, my special guest is Don Curry. Don has a PhD in human and organizational systems, extensive background in software development, and several key positions at Fidelity Investments, where you work for more than two decades. Now he coaches busy technology executives and business leaders on when to say yes to increase their productivity, focus, and results. Welcome to the Mindset Zone, Don. I love how you start your book, When to Say Yes, that you start a lot speaking about that we are so in the, these days in age. And I think especially now after COVID, we ask, how are you or how things are going? And people say, I'm busy. Do you, do you find that now after COVID uh, is a, even more common than before? I think it was common before. And even people are just swamped. They don't know. They're adjusting to a different way of working. And they say things like, I'm so busy or I'm crazy busy or I'm scary busy, even someone said to yes. me. Um, and sometimes people can even wear it as a, like a badge of honor. I'm really busy, you know, busy, busy, busy. The words we use really are labels we put on our experiences. And if we're putting busy on our experience, I think there may be an opportunity to upgrade that experience to something else. Yeah, and that because I I often ca caught myself saying, I'm good busy, but he's still busy. <laughs> uh, right. I try to give it a positive twist, but he's still that thing of busy, 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 busy and running around from one place to the other for one appointment to the next. And I, I honestly see most people in many uh, in the business world and even outside of the business world in that dynamic. And you have, uh, like you were starting to speak about, you are an advocate that you like to help people to do a mindset shift regarding to this. So can you tell us more a little bit about this? Yeah, so I, I think the mindset shift, and again, it's a label that we put on our experiences. If instead of saying busy, we said, what if we were purposely productive? And it kind of has a nice ring to it, right? So, hey, Don, how was your week? I was purposely productive. How was your week? And what I mean by that is it's not just really a change in uh, vocabulary, but there's a meaning behind it. Like, 
being purposely productive, you're purposeful about your schedule, you're purposeful about what you say yes to, and as a result, what you say no to. So it means that really you're in control, you're feeling in control, which I'm hearing from a lot of people, they feel like overwhelmed or out of control. So purposely productive means you're feeling in control, you're crystal clear on your goals, you're making progress towards your most important goals, and you're conscious about how you invest your time. Okay, so there is a lot to unpack there. Okay, let's unpack. So let's let's start, still go back to the busy, because I think, yeah. uh, and another thing that you speak is about the problem with the to-do lists. Yeah. Uh, people are busy, they start to organize themselves, they even get some people's software in their phones or computer, the people, the old, uh, uh, post-it notes, uh, whatever is the system, and the, we write the things that we, we take things of our head, that is good to put it in a paper, that is a first step, getting things done, taking things out of our head. But uh, the to-do list, I love a quote about the to-do lists that is, the to-do lists always are going to outlive us. We mm -hmm. always are going to add something else. And even if we start the day, with five items in the to-do list, it's so easy that we start to fill up others in between that we didn't put there initially. And you mm -hmm. have a, a great approach. So tell us a little bit about to-do lists and the problems with the to-do lists. Yeah, well, yeah, certainly there's always more to do than we can do. So that's another reason we need to be really conscious about what we take on and what we say yes to. And even if we have a to-do list, number one, we may not be clear on what's the very next thing we need to do. David Allen was really good about asking us to get down to the next action. What's the next action you need to do on this? It may be something really small on your list, or it may be something big that you need to break down. The other thing that we get into trouble with is uh, we're not exactly sure about the priority of our to-do list. So is this the most important thing to do or not the most, or is it just the biggest thing to do or the smallest thing to do? So what order do you approach it in? Those are just a couple of um, issues. And if we can transform our thinking again from just a, like a list of things to do where we put it in the order in which they appear versus think about it more like an action list, which first of all, you trust where you're going to go to get it done. But it's absolutely 100% prioritized. Love it. It needs to be prioritized. So moving from to-do list to action list, that yes. small shift that makes a huge difference. And you are implicitly, you're also speaking there that many people, including myself and all humans in general, if we don't train ourselves in a to-do list, we put tasks, but we also put projects. We mix the two there. And yes. the project is a lot of tasks, so can be extremely overwhelming in a to-do list and freeze us in the procrastination cycle. The priority that you speak that is so important to know what uh, uh, is. Uh, I always like to remind myself that priority comes from the word prime first and the only by mm -hmm. definition can be one first. And another thing that I think is also very important in any of these systems, and we forget a lot in the to-do lists, is the level of energy that some, some activities can be energy generating mm -hmm. and others energy draining. How do yeah. you factor that 
in your action list? Like, let's go towards the solution there. Well, uh, this is again where I think priority comes first. And the other interesting thing about priority, by the way, is that it's a fairly recent phenomenon that priority is a plural, plural word. It was always a singular. And so we had one priority. This is our priority singular. And then I don't know, maybe the last 50 years or a hundred years, it's become plural. And now we have multiple priorities. So I think that still needs to come first. And what we're capable of doing, which I really believe, is we match our energy to what we need. So mm. bring up your energy to focus on your priorities. We can do that in an instant if we want. We can uh, by shifting, sometimes just shifting our the way we use our body. And there's been some research on this. Shift your body into a more energetic state, then we can focus on those higher priority tasks versus waiting for the energy to show up. That is a recipe to not get things done. Yeah, <laughs> waiting exactly. for the yeah. the energy or the will to do things. How do you say? Is a plan. I, I like that, that we can. And that I think is why deadlines work so well, because that energizes us to do it. Yeah. <laughs> because there is a deadline there. Well, here's the other thing, too, if I could add to that, which is consistency. So, you know, writing a book has been on my project list for a number of years. And the way I actually got it done was to block time on my calendar every single day to write. Now, some days it flowed and I got lots of words in and it, 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 um, it worked really well. And then other days I got fewer words done. Maybe the creativity wasn't there or whatever, but just the fact that you stick with it consistently, your mind starts to come up with better ideas and better ways of doing things. And so this is when I say, you know, uh, we're conscious about how we invest your time. Another way to think about that is to block time on your calendar to work on your most important goals. And ideally in the beginning of the day, because it's when I, I think we can create more uh, space that is not yeah. going to be taken over by other fires that need to be taken care of. Yeah, that certainly would be a way to look at it is before anything else gets interrupted. And I did my writing early in the day too. I'm not an expert on this, but there is something that about circadian rhythms, which Dan Pink writes about in his book, When. And he, and, and he uh, talks about that some people are more productive at the beginning of the day and some people more at the end of the day. So maybe your listeners would do more research on that. Too. Yes. And that, that reality say is the lark, the one in the beginning of the day, traditional in traditional psychology, we call them the lark and the owl at the end of the day. Yes. But I, I have to say that that can change. I was always an owl in okay. my student's time. If I will put the alarm clock to study in the morning, I will fall asleep in the top of the book, even if I had an exam that day. To that at, at night for my memory, I could memorize a lot in the evening. Um, and and now I'm I'm in the 5 a.m. club. I wake up mm. at 5 a.m. Mm -hmm. and I can be very productive in the morning. So there is some, but absolutely, I think we have to be aware 
of uh, the individual difference wherever we are in which stage our lives we are and and that small things and then see how they apply to us because even you were speaking about the consistency mm -hmm. some people like the consistency every day or from monday to friday and the people they prefer okay for writing a book they prefer to take three or four hours a morning and be consistent that way weekly or the mm. weekend but i think one of the phenomena that happen there when in on the consistency is that we take the decision out we already decide every day to spend half an hour or one hour writing the book in the morning or in the evening or three hours in a block one day of the week and that moment is like we are like when we are brushing our teeth in the morning we are not thinking should i wash my teeth today or not <laughs> We just <laughs> right. do it. And that yeah. saves a lot of mental energy. Yes, agreed. Yeah. It 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 becomes it becomes a habit. And and when it becomes a habit, your mind is also processing it uh through through in between those sessions as well. Yeah. So, no, and that yeah. can be very powerful. And an, another thing, um what because I like what you're saying that we really can bring the energy to meet the moment. And uh, I love things like the Pomodoro method and that is doing every 25 minutes a little break and then longer breaks after a couple, uh, four times yes. or the concept of micro breaks. What is your take on that? Yeah, I really like the Pomodoro method as well. So for if your listeners don't know about that, it's work for 25 minutes, take a five minute break, work for another 25, take a five minute break. And then after four, as you said, you take maybe a 15 minute break or longer because it gives you, first of all, it gives you permission to have an intense focus during that time. And it also gives you a permission, which is really important for productivity to avoid the distractions because it's so we're, we're getting alerted so much, right? Like ding email, buzz text, ring phone call. There are so many of these distractions coming at us all the time. If you're saying, okay, all I need to do is focus for 25 minutes, then you can catch up on the messages yeah. in between. In fact, this is what I'm encouraging people to do now. It's a bit controversial, so bear with me, which, and I've been doing it now for almost a year and it works really well, which is put your phone on do not disturb 24 by seven. There's no reason for the person that wants to get in touch with you to interrupt your work because you're being distracted. And actually, interruptions have such a big impact on our productivity. Even when doing simple tasks, they increase our error rates significantly with even short interruptions. So imagine for complex tasks, like whatever we're working on, th this knowledge work that we do. So now I also, uh, I get the objection sometimes, well, Don, well, what about emergencies? Mm -hmm. My parents are aging or my kids are in school. They need to get in touch with me. Great. Simple emergency protocol. If someone calls you twice within uh, 15 minutes, then your phone will alert. So it overrides the do not disturb. Or if you if it's really that important, you can have a phone number override or a person override the alert. There are ways to deal with the emergencies without taking the 99 out of 100 that aren't emergencies. I love that. I have my phone always in uh, the sound off, but I like that, that the extra step of uh, putting it really like in a 
theater mode or with some mm -hmm. kind of settings, not disturbed settings, with some special rules because I also have a kid in school. Yeah. Um, but uh, I absolutely make sense because it's, uh, and that is another thing. I love the exercise because we have this illusion that we are good at multitasking. Because we survive in adulthood, we have to do so many things. So God, we don't know how to multitask. And I love the simple, and we, we don't need to do it here. I just invite people to get the book, and I will say it's in page 20, 21. A great mm -hmm. a, a proof that multitasking really doesn't save mm -hmm. us time. It doesn't. And you are speaking a little bit about that now, correct? Yes, for sure. Well, yeah, you're you're switching between tasks. I like to call it fast task switching as opposed to multitasking because our you know the world the word multitasking came from the world of computers, right? A CPU or the central processing unit of a computer is responsible for everything a computer does from the click of a keyboard to intense calculations or gaming. The CPU is responsible for all of it. And when the CPU ends up spending more time switching between tasks than it does processing tasks, this is called thrashing. And when the computer thrashes, performance degrades, and ultimately the computer crashes. And that's what's happening with us. We're switching between tasks and we're thrashing and we're either slowing down or ultimately burning out maybe because we're trying to do all of this. So uh, there's lots of research on this. If you focus on one task at a time, you're more productive. Yeah, and we can enter in that state of flow that we really are getting things done. And even in the creative process, I think that is super, super important. And that is one thing that I adapt the Pomodoro method. If it's for tasks, like to-do list, to-do list, no checklists or things that are that I know the process. Mm -hmm. I love the Pomodoro. Okay, twenty-five minutes in LinkedIn. Yes, it's mm -hmm. my time in social media or and processing emails. We will go there too, if we have time, um, and all that. I love the twenty-five minutes break or time frame. But if it's more creating something, creating content, even the writing. I find that, and that also has to do with ultra-dian uh, rhythms, the 90 minutes kind of interval mm -hmm. works really, really well. Mm -hmm. 90 minutes, max two hours. Do you have something of, from your research regarding to that? And what is your take on it? Um, it makes sense logic logically to me. I, I, I haven't run across anything specifically in my research that says a 90-minute or two-hour focus. Um, will help you, but it logically makes sense. Because again, it's like a chunkable time versus trying to do some block the whole day or or do something in intense, long periods of time. And one thing that you really go in a lot of detail that I love in your book, you speak because it's like you were saying in the beginning when we start to unpack this, we have these kind of a bias that, uh, okay, we use the busy, 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 and uh, we can shift to be purposefully productive. Mm -hmm. But for be able to do that mindset shift, we really have to be aware of how our mind works, correct? Yes. And how we process the information. And in the book, you speak about a lot uh, about that uh, uh, 
changing the language mm-hmm. and being aware of uh, our cognitive bias. Can you t- give us a couple of examples? Yeah. So here's, um, first of all, this, this is a decision we make. When we get a request for our time, we have, and, and you get many requests, like every email you get is a request for your time. And, or you may get larger requests, like, could you do this podcast or could you run this project or could you come and speak here or lots of different requests. And we have a decision to make. Am I going to say yes to this? Am I going to say no? Or am I going to negotiate maybe some other way to do it? It's a decision. And the better we can be at making decisions, the more productive we'll be and the better we'll be at saying yes to the right things. So, Uh, And the other thing that comes up in the research, and then I'll get back to cognitive bias, is that people that are more thoughtful and more patient make better decisions. The people that are more thoughtful and more patient make better decisions. So there are these things, as you mentioned, called cognitive biases that get in the way of us making good decisions. And awareness helps in most cases. So the first one I'll talk about is something called the planning fallacy. So the so the planning fallacy goes like this. Have you ever planned out to do a uh, hundred things in a day and maybe you got half of them done or a quarter done or maybe none done? Well, you know, we, we all fall into this trap at one level or another. And it's because um, we think as humans, we can take on more than we actually can, or it will take us less time to do something than we imagine. So we take six books on vacation, thinking we're going to read six books in a week, or the contractor says he can get it done in three months. Of course, that means like three months on the Mayan calendar during leap year, uh, daylight savings time, whatever. It's, we know he's not going to get it done. So, um, There's good news and bad news with this particular bias. The bad news I'll share first, which is even now that you know about the bias, it's not going to help all that much. Even when people are aware of the planning fallacy, they still underestimate how long it's going to take. But the good news is we can use this awareness to help have other people help us estimate our work. So uh, someone else that's knowledgeable knowledgeable on our work and maybe coming with a more objective viewpoint can help us analyze this and estimate. And that will go a long way to having a managing manageable priority list. And I love that because even when you're saying the example of the uh, uh, doing something in the house and they say, oh, it takes a week, we always calculate. No, no, because we know by experience that they say it takes a week and it's going to take a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. if not three weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, absolutely, uh, when I'm doing my own organiz- planning for the week, they, I know, and if we, so many planners, they ask us, okay, what are the three main things and then uh, to schedule them. And uh, I really find it helpful to uh, do that game because I know that planning fallacy in terms of time, but I like to do the game. Uh, I have an uh, action item in my action list. I'm going to start to call it action list Mm -hmm. for now on. And uh, uh, I will put how long I think that will take me to do. Mm -hmm. And then I will put the starting time. And then at the end, I will check how long it actually took. Ah, very nice. And that helps me 
for things that are pro like uh, preparing a webinar or a class, that is really helpful because then I put in my uh, standard op operation procedures that I have at standardize. I put, okay, this, doing this will take you about half an hour. So I know for the future how long I should expect. Of course, there is always something that can go wrong with technology that makes it uh, mm -hmm. take longer, but it's a way of training myself to be more exact with the time that really things uh, take to be done. But you also speak about other very interesting bias. Can you tell us about another one? Yeah, I'll, I'll share one. Um, another one that comes to mind is called the sunk cost bias. Yeah. So uh, there's an interesting experiment they did where they told people they were the president of an airline company and or an airplane company. And um, they're in the, uh, they're building a plane that cannot be detected by radar. They've invested uh, 90% or $9 million in the project already. And just as they're getting to that 90% mark, you learn as the president of the company that there's another company building a radar blank plane as well. And theirs happens to be cheaper and faster than the one your company is building. So the question is, do you invest the last 10%, the last $1 million in this radar blank plane? Um, so think about that for a second. Now let's change the scenario. In the second scenario, you're the president of the airplane company again, and one of your executives suggests that you spend your last $1 million of research funds into a plane that cannot be detected by radar. Before you start the project, you learn that one of your competitors has a radar blank plane, and again, it's faster and cheaper than your plane. Again, the question is, do you invest your last million dollars of research funds into this plane? We know from these two scenarios that the investment is exactly the same, $1 million in both cases. But the way people respond is remarkably different. In the first scenario, 85% said they would invest that last million dollars. And in the second scenario, only 17% would invest. And this comes back to the sunk cost bias because we somehow think that the money we've already spent should have some future weight on investing in the future. But if we're really making good decisions, it should have no impact at all because it's the same investment. And the same is true for time. If we've invested a bunch of time in a project, and we somehow find out that we're not going to have the outcome that we expected, we got to revisit it and not worry about the time we've already spent. And and this one is a so tricky one. I still remember when I learned about this, the sunk cost fallacy, that I understood it intellectually, but we even, like you were saying before, even knowing doesn't prevent us mm -hmm. from falling into it. This one is one of that ones that is like uh, really pull us in uh, and is really a great reminder that as humans, we are not uh, thinking beings that happen to feel, we are feeling beings that happen to think. Right. And then we rationalize things to make sense and we just have to think about uh, two Nobel Prizes in economy from behavioral psychologists, that what they, they were, in essence, the core is that we cannot 
when they do the, uh, the theories in economy, they cannot presuppose that humans are rational. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you speak about the, you, the other more known bias, like the confirmation bias that we, uh, we have the tendency of bringing information that confirms our previous theories. Uh, in some way, we spoke already about this decision fatigue when we were speaking about being consistent that we already mm -hmm. have the decision taken. So it's really, but it's really important because it's not just enough to know this, we have to practice it. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I love in your book is that you have these action steps exactly for people to practice. It's mm -hmm. not otherwise can be, oh, interesting. And then we keep doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And an interesting shift that you also do, that also I think has to do with that practical element, and I want to your take on it, is that most productivity experts are speaking about, okay, we have to learn to say no, no, no. Yeah. But in the name of your book, you, I think very strategically, the book name is When to Say Yes. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, you hit the nail on the head. There's lots of productivity experts that tell us the importance of saying no, and many others that even teach us how to say no. There's only one little challenge with saying no, which is we don't like to say no. <laughs> we prefer not to say no. The participants in the survey said, you know, it's hard for me to say no. I'd rather just figure out how to do something. Um, or I don't even think about, do I have permission to say no. These, this is some of the thinking in our knowledge worker leaders out there that uh, uh, about this feeling no. So, if so, I just thought, well, you know, let's just flip this on its head and say, all right, well, let's come up with a process of when to say yes, because if we know when to say yes, the rest is pretty evident. So that's where the five step uh, process, or think about them even as like organizing principles around that process of when to say yes. And uh, it's all about protecting our time. Mm -hmm. So I hope that this really makes people think about how they are using their time and how they can be more productive in an intentional way and getting more things done that are really important. And if they want to learn the five-step process to when to say yes to protect their time, Besides reading the book that they can go to now uh, to any online bookstore and buy when to say yes, yes, where they can learn more about you. Yeah, so I'd suggest two things. First of all, you can go to doncorey.com. So D Corey is a little bit tricky to spell, so I'll spell it out D-O-N-K-H-O-U-R-I.com. And there are some resources there. You can also uh, links to, to purchase the book. Also, feel free to email me. If you email me, I'll actually give you the handout that goes with the audio book, uh, which has the five steps and it has the has some good visuals as well. It's maybe a good starting point if you're um, on the fence about buying the book. And you can just email me at don at doncorey.com. And I love to talk about productivity. So even if you just want to email and ask a question about you know, how do I deal with this? What do I do? Feel free. And if they want to bring you as a keynote speaker that you also speak like the if, about these two groups, they also in your website. Yeah, correct? also on doncorey.com, there's information about booking me as a speaker and some other information there as well. 
love it. So I will make sure that and uh, in the show notes of this episode, we'll have all of those. And thank you so much for your time today. It's been a productive conversation, Anna. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening and remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. As always, I'm so grateful you are here. Expand what's possible for you, for the ones around you, for the world.